And welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Melts a Five Star Project, where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host, Simon Cross, discuss every match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars or higher. Yet again, we're in the or higher category. Simon, tell the fine folk what we've got in store for them today. We are at the recent AEW Full Gear pay-per-view, and we are watching... FTR take on the Young Bucks for the AEW Tag Team titles. A true dream match, it has to be said. This has been a match that's been anticipated and has been built up for about four or five years, this stage. Yeah, it's been, like, fantasy booked, it's been mulled over, like, people have had, like, dream scenarios for a long... You're right, a long time. Well, it was a long, long long-held running gag on being the elite, the whole fuck the revival (laughs) gag and that being something that not just the young bucks would say but other people within when cody rhodes wins the ring of honor world championship i think the first things he says when they're celebrating in the ring is cody you've just won the ring of honor world championship what do you have to say fuck the revival amazing (laughs) because the revival was all about the art form of tag team wrestling in the tradition uh, whereas the Young Bucks were seen as like the ideological opposite of that in many regards, in that they were also about tag teams, but they were all about the stunts and the spectacle of it, yeah. and also that fourth wall-breaking nature of their character. The nod and wink to camera stuff. Yeah, I think I've said it before, the best description I've heard of the Young Bucks is that they're like the Deadpool of wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Uh, yeah, we certainly had a very nod and wink to camera moment in the build-up to this match when Matt Jackson's watching an FTR match on the monitor, but he stood with his back to it, looking over his shoulder at the screen. Clearly a little dig at like, WWE's trope of watching side-on that they always cut back to. Yeah, and I think it was a match that was always going to happen. I guess at one stage it was that question of are the WWE going to throw enough money at the elite guys to bring them all into NXT or or at least a few of them. Especially after the Kenny Omega six star match with Okada, then it was a case of they built this brand outside of the WWE and were they gonna be traded as almost like an invading faction and if so, the Young Bucks against the the revival was what people were looking forward to most of all on that end. But then when AEW became a concern there was always that sense there was only so much the revival could do within the wwe because of vince mcmahon in particular's aversion to tag teams for the most part i don't know what's got into him in the last few years but he seems to hate it (laughs) well he he sees it as a wasted investment really i think you're you're spending so much on two lots of talent so you have to pay twice the salary in theory (laughs) But it's not like he hasn't had great tag teams in his time. I mean, I think a lot of people point to the late 80s WWF tag team division and then the the early noughties WWF tag team division as two of the best rosters of talent ever assembled in wrestling. And they're the ones that you hearken back to and that this match harkens back to at various points because this is essentially not just a dream match, but... It's almost meant to be a celebration of the medium of tag team wrestling. Oh, didn't I see someone did describe it as a love letter to tag team wrestling? It was one of the like papers on the Dynamite after this. They obviously threw their quotes out, and a, a American newspaper guy had said that. I I can't remember who to attribute that quote to, but people will be able to find it. I kept a tally a list as it went along of all the different double team moves that they did from different tag teams, and that really has been. Also, the FDR gimmick, really, both in the WWE, but also then when they moved on to AEW, like every match, there would be an homage to one or other tag team. They do the Powerplex finisher, which I think a lot of people yeah. have long considered maybe one of the best underrated finishers in wrestling. They do the heart attack. The, yep, they do the heart attack. They also do an homage to their greatest rivals, DIY. What what is that move called? Is it was it ever called anything? 
I cannot remember its name. Kick and a, a charging knee. Yeah. Uh, they also did the Steiner Brothers one yep, as well, they don't the they? Yeah, the Steiner Bulldog. And then in return, the Young Bucks at one point do a 3D followed by the Twist of Fate Swanton combo. Really good Swanton as well, I Yeah. Say. Well, I mean, you know, it's Nick Jackson. That's... We've said it before, <laughs> but he is a phenomenal talent. And the funny thing, like I said, it was also the same with their Revolution match at the start of the year with Kenny Omega and Hangman Page, that the story of the Young Bucks seems to be that Matt Jackson gets them into trouble and Nick Jackson bails them out. Yeah, where it was Matt's hot-headedness against Pang... Uh, Pangman Page. Pangman. <laughs> Pangman Page, there's one for the books. Hangman Page at Revolution, which knocked them off their game. And hot-headedness does come up again. Spe- yeah. Well, it's the injury this time, but hot-headedness does come up again. Uh, when he brings the chair into the ring. Yeah. And Dax is screaming at him to hit him. Yeah, we'll get to that as we go along. The other recurring theme of this match is the wounded team member. The going in, Matt Jackson has the bad fibula or something. It seems like they sort of sell it as an ankle injury, I guess. But it's the lower part of the leg rather than the knee, which is usually the focal point of of an attack when you're doing limb work. But also what happens in, early on in the match as well is that Dax wounds his hand. Oh, yeah, like he really smacks it into that ring post as well. It looks nasty. I wonder if he bladed his own hand. There is AEW precedent for this with Trent blading his arm yeah. in that parking lot brawl. So I, I can see the argument. Yeah. I misunderstood where the blood was coming from the first time I watched the match. I thought it was like in the webbings of one of his hands. Mm. Uh, but it's actually to the it's like the, ba- it's... the the side of the palm, like like if you're going along your middle your little finger, it's that part that doesn't really make sense for it to be sliced against the ring post, which again is what makes me suspect that it was a small blade. Well, the corners are rounded off, aren't they, on the ring post? It's it's square, but it's not. Yeah, but sharp, it doesn't punch it? that. Yeah, but that is the running thing through, and also it's both teams losing a key weapon. Matt Jackson can't jump, leap off of ropes easily, and also he can't be the base to hold, because usually he will be the one that lifts and holds an opponent in place to allow Nick to do things for like the Meltzer driver or the more bang for your buck. And that's one of the funny things in this whole match. It's the Young Bucks' biggest match of their careers probably at this point, and they'd never do more bang for your buck. They never do the Meltzer driver or the Indy taker. They don't really go through most of their greatest hits in the match. Similarly, FTR don't hit the Shatter Machine. I think it's called Midnight Special now, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is the Midnight Special. They now. do hit the Spike Pile Driver, which again is another homage, but it's a. Um, I think that was the move that won the Oh, Mindbreaker. Mindbreaker. Um, Excalibur called oh, it. Yeah, yeah, obviously because of the Brainbusters, who are the team that they're most directly compared to most often. Of course, they're managed now by Tully Blanchard, who gets taken out early on. Some people... Have... Well, he, no, he was um, banned specifically from ringside in like the announcement. Uh, it's that and... Because obviously, the way they set this up, I think they went a stage too far when they added the stipulation where if the Young Bucks lost this match, they weren't allowed to challenge for the tag team titles again. I worked myself into a shoot on our like predictions, Fred, because I, I had a, a booking theory that did involve the Bucks not being able to challenge and then winning that right back alongside Cody in the match beyond or something like that. Well, then it worked then, surely, because otherwise, if it's a stipulation that doesn't make sense, then it will put people off. Because they think it leads to an inevitable result down one... Like, you know, if it's John Cena's career is on the line or something. Yeah, yeah. And whilst I did go the other way, a lot of people in general that I've spoken to and like watched, watched the match with and have seen online were like, well, the books are obviously going to win. And I, I think that lets it down a tad... But surely you not thinking that disproves that. I'm speaking as like the majority, though. Like I don't know if you can speak for the majority. We don't know what the majority thinks. So let's get into account. Obviously, AEW is marketed towards a particular type of fan for the most part. I think a lot of people could see different storyline avenues they could go down mm. with this. And that's that sort of that was the point I was making. Like they they've set this up to be a series of matches, which is why we didn't have Tully, which is why. Midnight Hour wasn't hit, which is why probably the Young Bucks didn't hit any of their moves. They're for the, the sequel. Well, that's also what I wanted to say with um, regards to this, because 
I think it was also playing into the common complaint, I guess, of the past year and a half, which was that the elite always put over the new incoming acts to the point that they were diluting the value of themselves as brands. Omega was losing to Puck, he was losing to John Moxley, Hangman Page was losing to Chris Jericho for the title, Cody was losing to MJF. The Young Bucks were losing to Private Party and, and they weren't the first, you know, the promotions were over a year old at this point and they still hadn't won the tag team titles. I think with Omega that's sort of like a, and Hangman, it's sort of like a long-term arc. Maybe they've got in their mind. But also I do think that um, they were a bit conscious that they were going to, they didn't want to be the guys that won all the time. Because everyone will go, well, it's their company, they're winning all the time. So maybe they've overcorrected themselves. Exactly. And I think it was because of people's thought of that overcorrection that everyone had always assumed that the first time the Young Bucks would face FTR in AEW, that they would have FTR go over them to set up the rematch. Which, again, was why that I think there was that layer of intrigue because everything that we understood of AEW storylines is that the, the elite fall at the first hurdle and then come back. You know, they'd always get their asses handed to them by the inner circle until the final payoff. Kenny Omega's now making his ascent to the top of the promotion, it seems. He's coming out of his, like, chrysalis. Cody, in theory, taking himself out of the world title picture for his whole time in AEW and turned himself into an an upper-mid-card special attraction, the founding block of the TNT Championship. Now he doesn't have that, I'll be curious to see if he moves away from that as well. Well, he's got a celebrity match coming eventually. Let's let's move away from that and let's just stick with what they were saying. But also, the, I think also the other thing about this match is they obviously, it's t- happening a lot later than they originally intended and that this mm. match has suffered from like so many other situations has suffered from the COVID lockdown and all of that yeah. because it's a real shame that all of these first time moments between the Young Bucks and FTR were in front of a very small number of people very mm. widely spaced out in a huge stadium that is the overriding thing that I felt with this match is that if it was in a 10,000 seat arena with every 18 inches there was a butt there as the old saying goes watching and, and cheering and and taking in this dream match, there were several moments that I thought, God, the the reaction this would have got when Cash and Dax do the DIY pose. The crowd would have gone so crazy for that. I like the fact in that Cash is the one sort of egging Dax on to do it, and he's like, not too sure what he's going for at first. Or like, I don't know why we should be doing this. Cash, over the course of the match seems to have become like the more cocksure one. Cash becomes flustered in the match, whereas I think maybe it's because he feels like he has to take on a certain amount of responsibility because Dax is the wounded member of the team. Mm. But that was something that would have got a huge pop. Another thing that would have got a huge pop is when the Young Bucks did the Marty Skrull finger break moments. Yeah. Shouting out their elite guy then followed by their version of the golden trigger the bte trigger that would have got a massive response from the crowd as well like it did when they did the golden trigger to kenny omega in revolution and kenny kicked out at one i think the uh hardy stuff as well would have been yeah very well well received yeah but all of it i think most of the crowd would have got maybe they wouldn't have necessarily got the steiners moments mm. or i mean the powerplex is more just this is a really cool move by a decent tag team but not one of the all-time greats yeah, but all the other big things, the, yeah, like you say, the three D and 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 all that sort of stuff. When they hit the spike pile driver, I think everyone would have assumed that was the finish. I think that's that's the one thing that really hurts it. And also another thing that was hurting it going in was the shades of grey they were going with with the young bucks pseudo heel turn, super kicking everyone. I think the whole nature of the story was meant to be that the FTR got in their heads. That was the whole thing. They played mind games. They got in the heads of Hangman, which won them the tag titles. They got in, they were getting in the heads of the Young Bucks, and the Young Bucks weren't feeling themselves. But then it didn't have its retribution moments. The Young Bucks started acting more like the Young Bucks people seem to know. Like they, they stopped being like these nice boys and started becoming these arrogant knobs more and more they let more back into that again but they were doing that back in february with hangman page the young bucks has kind of always been assholes they're a weird team to book 
or the, the way they are booked is weird, I should say. Because they're like, oh, these cool, like, cocky guys, but we're meant to love them. To go back to Tully Blanchard not being allowed to be present, I think, like you say, it's that sense of they want this to be the dream match, and the dream match has no interference. No one is a focal point other than the Young Bucks and FTR. And so that's why they play pretty straight as well. No one really... There's not really any fuck finishes or any... Like, apart from the steel cape, the steel chair moment, really. And that's them going into their sort of big epic drama. I can see when this rematch happens, Tully taking a buckshot lariat. I don't know what bumps they are comfortable with Tully getting or not. I, don't, I mean, he looks great still for his age. He's got a fantastic killer stare. I feel like he could be give you a Alex Ferguson blow-dry treatment. Oh, yeah. Backstage, because they were saying Cash is going to get told off for not sticking to the game plan and going from no flips just fists to flips well we'll get to that again i mean my prediction would be that the fdr are going to win the belts back pretty quickly using matt jackson's injury like in a fairly quick much shorter match there'll be more about the story. like a shock not even a shock just i think it'll be more like that uh, mustache mountain undisputed era match do you remember that match Simon? i wondered when that was gonna turn up well the moment you said mustache mountain i knew where this was going we haven't actually talked that much about the match itself from start to finish so let's do some of that as well they have ftr coming out in the matching garbs it was in- it was interesting they yeah. didn't have tully wear the same colors with them that time but i think tully it's almost like the manager has his own thing but they had the greatest tag team of all time and did you notice they had the grand slam thing with the colored stars on their back i assume that was referencing smackdown tag champs raw tag champs nxt tag champs and aew tag champs that was a nice touch and obviously they're in the green and the books wear lakers colors so it's lakers celtics which is pointed out by excalibur i wonder if that was a deliberate move or if it was just a coincidence in hindsight are the bucks from california i know they were in pwg yeah so uh, rancher cucamonga california they are californians okay uh although fdr no one of them's from north carolina yeah but i guess maybe if they went if we're gonna be lakers you'd be celtics because that seems yeah. like the great rivalry of basketball ever wasn't it with um magic johnson and larry bird so yeah, a nice a nice little gesture, a nice little thing. But like I said, the the whole point of the Bucks is that Matt is stubborn and gets them in trouble and that is shown by him starting the match for them. Yeah. And it's his pride as well. So immediately Cash goes for his ankle and Matt's trying to kick him away. And what I like about this is that it's not just that they're all their tag teams, so they know all the tricks in the book. They know all the tricks in their opponent's book. So a frequent thing in this match is each team trying to get the other one into the their corner and them knowing that's what's going to happen and desperately trying to fight out of it. Mm. And that's pretty much it from the start. Cash is, immediately goes for the ankle and he immediately tries to get Matt into their corner. And Matt knows that's what he's doing and fighting off and getting away from it towards his corner to cause the standoff that comes in at that point. And then Nick and Dax tag in after that and then they're really they're more down to work in the headlock and trade off of quick moves and that's where you get the indie standoff. Well actually no you don't get the indie standoff to be fair. That was one thing I liked that it ended with Nick winning that exchange because if it's gonna come down to quickness, it's always gonna be the young bucks. Especially if it's Nick. But if it's gonna get into brawling and power moves, which it does at later points, then you've got to try and work a way out of it. And so they keep trying to get him into the corner and they they try to get Nick into the corner and Nick does that but he's able to escape it again and that allows them to do a, a double team sequence so it's like the Young Bucks have been able to thwart every attempt from the FDR at the start and they're the ones that first get to utilise the tag team and, and fluster their opponents like you say it is all constantly them trying to get him into the corner and at some point they can't do it and Nick fights them off in the corner a second time but Dax dodges a, a suplex but then they get in again and to do the double run and the stereo drop kicks. And then soon after that is when Dax hurts his hand on the ring post. Smashes his hand into the post, yeah. The, the Young Bucks were handicapped going in, but they needed to just keep fighting away from it. I guess it was kind of like we were saying with the Kijimuto Vader match, where Kijimuto's at such a clear disadvantage from the start, so he has to wrestle a perfect game. And at this yes. point, the Bucks are doing that. And then when they see that there's a chance to hurt. Dax in the same way that it hurt that the mat is hurt they go for it and they are vicious with it you know the mm. the stretching of the hand there's a really great moment where he stomps the hand yeah uh, Matt but he does it with his bad leg yes because 
rush of blood to the head on his part and that's a great moment of just anything to hurt you like I just want to make sure you're also as injured as I am like I'm, I'm neutralizing you so then we get to the point where Matt finally becomes weakened with the moonsault but it's a it, it does feel like a moon this is my big note it was a moonsault to nothing Dax was nowhere near. There was no sign of what he was trying to do, where he was supposed to be. I think Dax... It felt like Dax should have charged him, or... or I don't know why, but, like, there was no reason for Matt to do that moonsault. Dax was nowhere near him to hit him. He wasn't escaping it or, like, realising that he was missing him, like Coach Rabushi when he tries to moonsault, or, or Chris Jericho going for a lion salt. Dax was, like, coming towards the turnbuckles. No, he wasn't, though. That was the thing. He wasn't. Okay. Dax is behind him when he does the moonsault, and he's behind him when he lands on his feet. Ah. So it made no sense. That was a mark against it, because they want to be about mm. all the perfect storytelling and that, and to me that was a mark against it, really. But that's where we get to the targeting of the ankle. And what I really like about the FTR is that sense of they are for the team always. Yeah. And what I also like is that they never fall out with each other. There is an inherent trust. And they are always going for they're going for the tags and they, de- they want to be there for each other. And that they will make sacrifices for the other one. One spot I've always wanted them to do, which they haven't done yet, is the classic one where someone's fighting to get out of the corner and Arn Anderson would always do this where he grabbed them by the head and smashed their head into their partner's head. It's like his <laughs> his partner's head. So if it was like Larry right. Zabisco, he would grab you grab like Dustin Rhodes's head and smash his head into Larry Zabisco's to keep him down. And so with this one it's like when Dash is working on Matt in the corner going after his ankle, that is when Dax has a moment to go and get his hand taped up. There's a, a great bit around that, this time as well where they get Matt, one of them gets Matt in an Indian death lock and they sort of like run up and just like shove him over. And it's um, like no remorse, like this is going to hurt you. I'm going to shove you as hard as I can. But we're working together for a greater cause. Yeah. I love that. I love that sort of stuff. What I also like is that Matt is always fighting to get out of these holds. He's not just lying there. He is clawing away. He's he's fighting off at all times. He sold the desperation to get to Nick so well in this portion of the match. It's... Matt Jackson is an incredible seller. I remember the first time I really noticed them doing it was with the feud with Enzo and Big Cass is that notion of being there to be the block, acting on, on defence, and their... The spoiler. Their brilliant slide around to be suddenly in front of the opponent's partner to prevent a tag from happening. Oh, there's a moment where one of them tags the other in, and both of them simultaneously sort of slide round to get between hmm. Matt and Nick, and it's just such... It's like a pack of hyenas. There's no other way to describe it. it, it they just look so vicious in that moment of just isolating this wounded animal love also how how effective they make the drop toe hold look as well it's not just a case of holding him for control and and getting him down on the mat it is that's a move that's gonna hurt you on the way down if you've got a bad your lower leg is in great pain and that means he's holding him but he's also going for a tag but cash isn't there to take the tag he's got hurt uh, like matt's been able to get him at that point and so that means that then when they can't do the 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 block the blocking. That means that the, therefore Cash instead goes to attack Nick when he's on the court. You know, the other classic move that a tag team will do, which would be to take out the partner from behind. Yeah. But again, like I said, the fact that they know that trick too. So Nick isn't just taken for a ride. He fights to still stay in the corner. So weirdly, mm. instead of him fighting to get out of the corner, he's fighting to stay in the corner at that point. So again, I like that. It's not just doing the classic things. And then later on, that's paid off when Dash does manage to take him out before attack is by spearing him. And it comes as such a surprise to everyone that Nick doesn't even know that it's coming. And, and then, but then yeah. when Nick scouts out, so it's like a tale of, it's like in three chapters. Nick knows that he's going to attack him, take him out of the corner. So Cash knows that he knows that. So he's going to shock him with it the next time. But then Nick knows that that's what he's going to try and do. When he sees Cash coming towards him the third time, he's able to get out of the way and Cash just essentially topes to nothing to the outside. He's got a great spear as Cash as well. He's like he really throws himself in. Cash it. is a phenomenal athlete. He's fucking jacked as well. He is a big dude, isn't he? He's sort of squat in that frame, 
but he's built, but he can, yeah. you know, he can do a springboard 450 splash, we find out later on in the match. Yeah. Because it's funny, because neither of them were really seen as phenomenal singles wrestlers. None, of, Neither of them have had a great singles match. Mm. But I don't know if it's just because they hold it off for this, and they've just utterly dedicated themselves to the crafters because they were a tag team on the undercard for about a year before they got the big push i remember they called themselves the mechanics at one point which i think was a reference to what stone cold steve austin always referred to himself when he was talking uh when he's in the podcast he always said i was a good i was a good mechanic but i didn't have all yeah. the tools i think that was an homage to stone to steve austin because i know that he was saying that a lot and that was the time they called themselves the mechanics yeah. But they were already getting there. They started to have those, you could see the Brain Busters inspired jackets and everything. Mm. But it really wasn't until their first big event was like the, the semi final of the Dusty Rhodes Classic. I think they beat the Vaude Villains or whoever were the tag team champs on the way to that semi final. And then they lost to Balor and Joe, but they were presented as worthy adversaries to them. Yeah. That was, like, WWE could see where they were going with them. And so then they would just gradually, slowly build them up. And then, you know, they were having these really good matches with Enzo and Big Cass. And you kind of realised who it was that was responsible for that. Mm. <laughs> you know? And then it was just that gradual ascent each time. And then it was American Alpha and they're having the best match on the card. Oh. And then after that, it's DIY and they're having match of the year candidates. It's pretty crazy, really, that this is the first revival slash FTR match we're covering on this podcast. Yeah, really. I remember when I, I saw I was there live for an alpha. Was that the one where they won the tag belts from the revival? Yes, yes. It's such a good match. That was the opener as well. That's what was insane about like that card. That opened. And yeah, yeah, when you look back, you can imagine some whoever whoever was match number two backstage, like, ah, uh, right. Do you know what my gimmick would have been for them when they came up to the WWE? Because it's a gimmick I've always thought would be a cool thing to do, and it would have worked within the revival. I'd always had this idea for like, if I became a wrestler, this would be, and I was in the WWE, this would be a gimmick I would pitch, and that would be this essentially like almost like a hipster. It was better back in the old days. Not like a Vord... Obviously, there's a Vord Villains element to it, but the, because they are essentially... They say we are the revival. Essentially, they're saying we are tag team wrestling. Yeah. We're doing all these moves because we are the continuation of the Steiner Brothers, the Midnight Express, the Brain Busters. We're bringing them all together into one perfect new entity, and that is what we are. So I would have had them be that they're obsessed with the 80s. I would have brought Sean Mooney in and had them... Every time they're being interviewed backstage, they're being interviewed and the camera picture quality is deliberately toned down to 80s quality. Bring back the old... It's the 80s set. Bring back the old 80s sets and they're doing the classic interviews and they've got the WWE logo on the microphones. When they win the tag team titles, they bring back the original classic design of the belts. Okay. When they enter the Royal Rumble, instead of them getting the big music and the titantron and everything the the number the countdown is like the old 1989 1990 royal rumble in the corner mm. and then they come in and it's picture in picture and they do those picture in picture promos against their opponents during a, a like a, a match that they're having yeah give them like a, a you know a valet and have her wear like a an old 80s style one-piece swimsuit and have her hair like all moosed up Right, I'm with you. Just really go into it, that they go all in on it. Okay, okay. Then it works within the context of the match itself, because that is what they're doing. Yeah. You can put that humour into it, but then you can say, when we're in the ropes, you get to do tag team wrestling. You get to have your matches, but this is the presentation around it to make it more mainstream entertaining. So there's a parody tongue-in-cheek element to it. Like, there was always a parody tongue-in-cheek element to the ravishing Rick Rude character. But then when he had the match, Rick Rude would still come across as a badass, tough guy. I'm with you. That's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty interesting idea. There's, val- there's places you can go with that as well. So when they do the powerplex spot, what I like is that obviously what everyone loves about the powerplex was that Paul Roma would jump off the top rope before the superplex was done. Which was always the coolest element to it. Like it's like when a striker's running to a certain point in the pitch onto a through ball, and they're pointing at where they want the ball to be. Yeah, I'm with you. And that's essentially what 
Paul Roma was doing. It's like, I know where you're going to land and I can perfectly sink in time. And the opponent doesn't have enough time to even escape. Whereas with this one, because it was like an emergency, they're, they're making up on the spot, but there's still that simpatico. Like he, Cash will have seen Dax has got him up for a superplex, so Cash knows I need to get to the top rope to do a splash. Yeah. But the timing's not there perfectly because Cash was on the outside, but this is like Dax's, like we're in the corner, let's do it. So Dax does it, but because there isn't that Paul Roma precision timing, mm-hmm. that gives Matt enough time to know, well, I know who's coming up now. And it's that split second instinctive reaction you put your knees up but it's at the cost of you i always love that and some of they do great in like tanahashi matches where he's been going after the opponent's knee for the whole match and then when he hits the high fly flow if they're going to avoid it they're going to have to like take further damage on a weakened area yeah yeah but i like also because at that point matt also knows that nick's been taken out so what's the first thing he does instead of going for a tag he goes for an inside cradle Mm. You can see the gears working. In that moment, whenever the FDR think that they're losing the momentum, they have to switch it. Either it's blocking the tag, or in that moment, they're like, fuck it, we've got to throw him out of the ring quick. And Cash is there ready to beat the shit out of him on the outside. But then he misses a dive on the barricade, which is the first time that he misses a dive in this match. Takes it, uh, He spills right into it as well. Yeah, but also Dax then knows, oh shit, Cash is in trouble. So he throws Cash into the ring so that he can tag in and, and get mad. I just, you know, fuck. FTR rewards you. It's like it's like I said, like watching what I love about Bret Hart, what I love about Hiroshi Tanahashi, Mitsuhara Masawa. I never feel like I'm dumb for whilst watching this. Yeah. I never feel like I'm being treated like I'm dumb. Yeah, it's not being watered down for you. You're getting, like, the full concentrate. I mean, it's that people make mistakes, but it's that people... The other team takes advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So Matt can't... Realises he can't punch Dax because he keeps dodging the punches. So what does he do? He does the... He hits him with an Arn Anderson move as well, which is brilliant as well. Dax falling for the Arn Anderson the move. The DDT thing. Where he goes for the jab, Dax sees it and he DDTs it. I love that as well. Cause so it's like, you know... I can hit you with a dive, which Dash obviously points out when he does the spear to him on the outside. And Matt's like, well, I can hit you with a DDT yeah. like, your, like your best buddy. <laughs> you know? But what is curious as well, one thing that they've been saying about these mo- a lot of modern day tag team matches is that the hot tag is not as hot as it used to be. Mm. And this is another point where it's like, if it was in front of a 10,000 seat arena and they're really into this and they also want to play a crowd in a great tag team match they would pop for a hot tag yeah they'd pop for uh that tag to nick definitely yeah but i'd like the nick is a house on fire but it's not like a complete blitzing of them again like how with matt is fighting just always when they're going for him with the knee they are bumping and feeding but just as quickly they're trying to get him into the corner or they're taking him to the outside and nick's having to adapt to it yeah as they're going as well and he hits him with the bulldog clothesline combo on the outside I always love that when they do their classic stuff, but they have to vary it up. Like I said, there were so many great examples of that in CM Punk, John Cena match at Money in the Bank. Mm-hmm. Very early on in that run, he, he hits the body press, but then Cash rolls through and sets him up for the heart attack. Yeah, and then that's when we start getting the um, tag finisher tribute section yeah. of, of the match. Some beautiful... I don't. I didn't like... Well, the 3D wasn't as clean as it could have been, but nah, what are you going to do? It can work as well in the sense that Matt is hurt so we can't yeah. necessarily get him up as well and i think that the 3d is so difficult to time it really is a sign of how good the dudleys were with that move it always looked so good and like you say when you see other people try and do it and you had bubba ray dudley as your base so you were always like in good stead no but like devon has to time it just oh, well. yeah, again like yeah. devon can't see where bubba is so it's got to be that trust of him mm-hmm. And Bubba has to know this is exactly like like with Paul Roma. I know exactly where I need to be in the ring to catch him. Because it's a move that could be fucking dangerous if oh, you yeah. do it wrong. Where you're controlling someone's head as they come down. But I don't think anyone's ever been truly... Like, obviously, kayfabe injuries like mm. Beulah McGillicutty. But yeah, as we say, over this time, Matt goes for a buckle bomb and his knee gives in. He's able to stop a tag from happening and getting Matt back into the corner. So it is like we're back to square one again already. But I like that. In, in some people say that then that like it's a sign of how again matches being too long. Like maybe what you should have gone straight into the big epic finishing straight at that point, and instead 
you've built the crowd up to this crescendo and then you're bringing them down mm. and the crowd's a little bit like... Well, the sharpshoot is sort of like the palate cleanser when they're in that like sharpshooter mm. bit because it's a tense bit, but it's not a high-tempo bit. So they're able to yeah. keep the story of the match going without it taking like... A... But before that, to be fair, before that, that is when we see the, the Steiner Bulldog followed up by Cash immediately sprinting at Nick and diving and, yeah. and sending him out of the ring. Uh, which is such a cool spot. And then, what I also love as well, again, because of how little the Young Bucks are doing their shtick, or when they're doing their shtick, they're getting it, they're having to either get it in quick because FDR are going to counter them, or they're, you know, he's doing it on the outside or whatever to try and get um, a moment's chance. The first super kick we see in the whole match is their desperation last chance to stop them doing the midnight special. Yeah. Shatter Machine finisher, which is such a perfect way to bring the super kick into the match for the first time. It's their last line of defense, essentially. It's their go-to escape, really. Yeah, it's it's what they know. It's like the one kick they've practiced a thousand times. It's like Iron Robin cutting in onto his left foot. And like you say, then they're like, "You're going to hit us with all the classic tag team moves." Well, how about a couple of our own? Like you say, with the 3D and then most obviously the Hardy Boys twist fight. And to be fair, also they'd done the stereo drop kicks early on in the match, which is a Rock and Roll Express uh, homage as well. Yeah, and they, lo- they uh, love giving those boys uh, nods to the hat. And so then they're trying to prep for another like double super kick flurry, but Dash is able to clip Matt on the outside. So it's always that sense of at any point Matt can be taken out. And I love the incorporation of callbacks because then Dax instinctively hit punches Matt. And just its reiteration, he's still got that hurt hand and that's affected him. Oh, and immediately shakes it. It's brilliant. I like that little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he immediately has to shake his hurt hand. And then Matt hurts his foot with kicks. And then he super kicks Dax. He does like a spin kick. Like, and yeah, then he super yeah. kicks straight away. And he, both times he's just wincing and grimacing. And the super kick is the block. It hits Dax's hurt hand. Yeah. So again, it's just that reincorporation of if anyone's going to get pinned or beaten, it's probably going to be Matt for their side and maybe Dax for the other side. Yeah. And so that's when they go for the spike pile driver and Nick's able to stop it. They do their slingshot in Zaguri spots and then Nick planches Cash on the outside and this is where now this is FTR in peril and this is where you get the double sharpshooter spot that you're desperate to get to love that love that spot because <laughs> i think that had a little bit of a that was a little bit of a callback as well the bit both members of ftr grab each other's arms is a callback to when they when diy finally beat them yeah well like i said the whole thing about ftr is they do things as a team they win together they lose together they talk to each other they're in constant communication throughout the match but also this is another one where there was the logic gap I think, and JR is really... It's a curious thing, JR, with AEW. <laughs> yes. There's times when it seems like he's deliberately sabotaging what's going on. Yeah. And this was one of them, because he's like annoyed at the lack of a break on when, when Dax reaches the ropes, they just pull him out. To be fair, though, that's been happening in wrestling for like 20 years at this point. Uh, it's not just an AEW thing, that. Or them holding hands together... And the fact that it's not ultimately FTR that save themselves. The way I view, just a quick quick aside on the tag situation, the way I view that three-man team is Grandad JR, Uncle Tony, and Excalibur's like like early 20s, late teens uh, member of the family that's like been, like comes around and like hooks up the DVR and stuff like that. Did you read that on Facebook, Grandad? (laughs) Or like, um, if they see something like, what's this? And he's like, oh, well, of course, this is this. A great example's not in this match, but in the total final deletion match with Sammy Guevara, it's like, oh, that's the staff of Mesosyphilis, of course. And uh, JR and Tony are like, oh, right, okay, yeah, of course, that makes exact sense. <laughs> I, like, me personally, I think JR has a place in the company. I think he's great for those pre-match packages where he's like the wise man of wrestling. A sit-down interview. He is still the Don at that. I think he can be like this wise voice that they go to mm. for a pink. You could almost give him like a regular monologue column every episode where yeah. he talks about what's going to happen or or JR breaks down the pay-per-view like the month, the week before you have a segment that's just JR talking about 
each match. I'm not in the place where I'd write him off of commentary just yet, but I, I get where you're coming from. There are he, He's not at his peak. But this is the problem. We've seen him at his peak, and his peak was mint. Yeah, well, it's so weird that there's three play-by-play guys, essentially, doing it. Excalibur is the true play-by-play, and then the other two are dropping in, like I said, the, the wise, distinguished gentlemen of wrestling. But like I said, that's there's two in that role, and I really enjoy the contributions Tony makes throughout the match. I think Tony's been fantastic throughout this whole Tony is that perfect thing. bridging gap between JR and yeah. Excalibur. If you took Tony out, that two-man team wouldn't work. But I think if you took JR out, the team would work all right. And I think if you put either Chris Jericho or Taz in that role instead of JR, I think it would probably be a better. Chris's commentary, and he is like, what? Well, let's say he's the fifth commentator on AEW at this point. The amount of like work he did during lockdown. I love his energy. Yeah, but I think he's trying too hard. And it bothers me a little bit. But but that's the character's... Tr- the character of Jericho is trying too hard. Yeah, I know. I've got to sort of unknit the two, but... There are times he's like, in his head, this line will definitely be funny. And it ends. Well, I think he's going for a Bobby Heenan energy, which is a different thing. And, and that's why I think it could work. Maybe you do it like the old days of Raw, where when it first went to two hours, where the first hour was One dude. JR, Michael Cole, Kevin Kelly. Yeah. And the second hour was JR and Jerry Lawler. Maybe something like that could be a way to go in the future. That's certainly one way of going about it. Dax is looking for the tag and Cash isn't there because Nick has been able to take him out with the sharpshooter. So it is that sense of Dax, the weakened, you know, the wounded animal of the team who would have probably tapped out to the sharpshooter if Matt's leg hadn't given in on it. Yeah. So Matt tags in Nick and so it's like, this is their chance for more bang for your buck, but it can't happen. But what I love, again, is that whole thing of the idea of the tag teams communicating and you seeing the thinking process behind it. So Matt backs Dax into the corner where Cash isn't there because at Nick's orders, he's saying, he's like running with him and saying, duck, I'm going to kick it. Yeah. And that is exactly what Matt does. He ducks and Nick hits him with the, uh, the Enziguri to the head. And because Dax is behind them, he might not necessarily know what's going to happen. He doesn't have time to react. Yeah. I just loved that. I loved seeing teamwork. It was like seeing... Roy Keane barking orders on the pitch or something. You know, you you know what I mean. Yes. Oh God! Just imagining Roy Keane in a wrestling ring. Terrifying. So then Matt gets and does the Marty Skull finger snap on Dax, which would have been just such a huge, huge, huge reaction. It's like when um, Hangman Page went for the chicken wing at Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Which does suggest at some point Skull's going to turn up, but it's going to not be quite as warmly received as it would have been. Well, but we'll yeah. we'll talk about that another day, maybe. Yeah, um, this is another one of the things that the the revival have always been so good at the last second save. Dash again. Dash again, just diving. Dash is the diving <laughs> specialist in he this match. So so good at doing that, though. He always has been. Like Cash, sorry, not Cash. Dash. Yeah, they're so similar. It's annoying. <laughs> I do like that Dax and Cash is a reference to Axe and Smash. I do like that. And I like the fact that they kept up the easy way to remember which is which. The one with the H in the first name is the one with hair. So here's the bit that bothered me. I didn't like this whole chair thing. I don't think it was right timed for this point of the match. Like, I get that Matt was being frustrated because they haven't put him away, but there was nothing in this that's like they've, they've taken his time. It's not like Christian spitting in Randy Orton's face and that being what triggers Randy Orton. It's not Roddy Piper not being able to beat Bret Hart through traditional methods, so he grabs the ring bell and he's essentially the old Roddy Piper, devil on one shoulder, angel on the other. I did not buy that Matt needed to do that, that felt that he needs to do that at that point when Matt is the one that's... If he's hot-headed, then he does it immediately, like I said, with the Randy Orton temper. Do you know what would have been better? I'm thinking about it off the top of my head is if Matt just like spur the moment like rush of blood to the head the red mist pick, grabs the chair out from under the ring and like Nick immediately like just grabs it and going what are you doing just just chill calm what if FTR had brought the chair in what if Cash had brought that chair in just laid it at his foot not for themselves but for Matt are you saying they Chekhov's gun that they were like should Chekhov's gun it no, not really. I'm not saying you lay it there at like minute two. I I literally think. I just think it would be a logical thing. Like, and again, it's that whole idea of the team sacrificing themselves. Cash could throw it in, thinking, "Yeah, my mate might just get a chair in the head now." Yeah. It just didn't work for me, and that's the thing. Like Matt really loves the whole 
Shakespearean melodramatic that we go back mm. to like the Omega Ibushi match and then again with the Hangman Page match and that you know and what have really you. like shouting lines of dialogue and it just came from nowhere yeah and I didn't like it it just wasn't it wasn't organically built to in that moment okay I will say it lasted it la- it lasted like five seconds too long as well I think it just didn't work in that moment if it hadn't had the stipulation of they'll lose that they won't ever get to challenge for the titles again then it would have been more believable that they could have done that yeah you know? yeah yeah but it's like Matt has already done it so it's like I guess that's playing again into the notion that Matt, Matt is hot-headed, but it's not hot-headed. He's hot-headed in the build-up. But then he just stands there for ages. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if you're thinking about it, then you're not going to do it. Yeah. The whole point of that is it has to be... In the moment, yeah. Or, it, oh, it'd be great if he had, if they were going to do the hot-headed thing, if he'd swung, but then, like, Nick grabbed the chair on the way down to block it. Well, that, again, that would have worked. Like, if it was, like, it was that immediate moment, and so Nick had to, like, Print. like almost what if it was like he went to hit Dax with the chair and Nick throws Dax out of the way yeah. and takes the shot because then the ref can't disqualify you for hitting your own teammates mm. yeah maybe maybe essentially what they felt they needed to do was for the again to set up a big tease finish because th- that is what they do there's several moments in this match where they go this could be the finish where they do the Steiner Bulldog and then they spear Nick through the, you know, he spears Nick out of the ropes. That was the moment. The, the sharpshooter spot, like you say, alluding to how they lost the titles to DIY. That was a moment. The stretch of the match we're about to go into, when I watched the match live, they had me hooked at least on two or three occasions in terms of thinking it was the end. The moment that they've got them set up for the Meltzer driver and then suddenly Tash from nowhere gets Nick on the apron and power bombs him through the table. And it was funny, I saw that was in the latest Botchamania, but I think it kind of it almost is better that the table doesn't break perfectly. Yeah. Because it sows into the chaos and the improvisationary nature is of that where a botch? going at this point. Like, it's not his fault. It's not really a botch. You know, it's obviously they meant for him to go through the yeah. table, but him like hitting the table and sliding off it, it looked fucking brutal. And that's what it needed to be. Every time that someone hits a table now, the intention is for the table to break. Like Punk Undertaker at WrestleMania. 29 when that didn't break it's like Spanish announced table lives (laughs) yeah and the the world went mental so it's a shame really that like every table is designed to be broken now whereas back in the day when you were seeing these table shots they were like when we started this project that's one of the things I learned about Japanese tables I'm like they're made of something different Dax turning it into the spike pile driver and one of the criticisms of a lot of the, the Young Bucks matches is too many kickouts. But I was trying to think like how many big kickouts there are, and in this one, he doesn't kick out the spike pile driver. Essentially, by lifting the leg and hooking it up, it falls. Si- similar to the, you know, and it has the ambiguity of when Omega hit the one winged angel to Okada and did it. Okada put his leg oh, on the rope or did his that, leg that just fall on the little rope. drape? Yes. But it was also that sense, again, that Matt knows what's going to happen. And I think Matt was deliberately rolling after he took that spike pile driver in the hopes mm. that he'll be somewhere close to the ropes when Dax stops him. And that, and then, then he is. So, yeah, I always like that when they have to drag them to the ropes. It's like uh, when they go to the ropes. It's like how when uh, Stone Cold hit Bret Hart with the Stone Cold Stunner at the 96 Survivor Series. I love that because he was close to the ropes, he had to drag Bret away from mm. them. And that allowed Brett enough time to be able to kick out. Yeah. So it would have been like, if that had been in the centre of the... So that is that sense, you, you know that if that had been in the centre of the ring... That would have been it, ball game. That would have been it. But this is then when they lose their cool, like how Matt nearly loses his cool with the chair. They pull the boot off, going for the ankle break move, which, and then they turn it into a, an inverted figure four, which is a callback to what... And they beat... DIY and Johnny Gargano tapped out. Yeah. And that was the first time where Tommaso Ciampa sort of looked at him skew with. You know, that was the first uh, setup for the future. And so again, he's going for it. So then they do that. And again, Cash goes for the spear. And like I said, the three steps of the story that's been told. Nick knows now what he's going to do. Dodges it. And so Cash goes in. And then he hits a 450 splash to uh, Dax. To break up the uh, To submission. break up the pin. Yeah. yeah to break up and I love that you can tell that Matt has seen Nick. So it's like, I've still got enough time just, to hold Just hold on. on for a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets a really long two count again. So Nick tries to pull Matt up to the corner, but then, then Cash hits him with a super kick before he can make the tag. Really throws himself into that super kick as well. And Cash is able to pull Dax in for the tag. So at this point, Nick's out. And, and Dax is out. 
but it's the weak member of the Young Bucks in the ring with the strong member of FTR. Yeah. And is, is this like maybe hubris? Is this overconfidence? Is this annoyance? Because he obviously go, he does the... Um, well, he does the super... Yeah, and then he does the too sweet afterwards and then um, flips off Matt. That sense I've been waiting so long for this moment. I've been waiting years to get you in the ring yeah. and say, fuck you, after you said, fuck me. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, I suppose. So again, another very believable and hitting him with the super kick, but not getting... And instead then thinking I'm going to do the perfect thing i'm gonna hit you with your own mm. i'm gonna hit you with a move that you're known for and show you i'm a better flyer than you are and it's perfect it's like all the times that the undertaker gets beaten but managed to beat someone because they think they're gonna put him away with his own move oh god like nearly every wrestlemania someone goes for a tombstone or it's not even necessarily a tombstone but the undertaker's able to do the reversal of it yeah you know? like like batista get him up for a power slam and then so the 450 hits nothing and then with his final burst of energy with his weakened leg, he hits him with the knockout blow of the super kick. And like we say, we've only seen like two or three super kicks in the whole match. Yeah. And that's enough for the three. He's just hit him with the knockout blow. It's the last bit of energy left within him. And then you've got the, um, the little setup for the future relationship uh, of the elite and other storylines sort of interweaving. Because Kenny comes down, celebrates with them. And you just see sad hangman in the entry. But it's, I like that the camera positioning is such that you wouldn't necessarily. They don't point to hangman. Excalibur makes like light allusions to it, and then Tony does at the end as well, which I thought was maybe milking it a bit too much. Yeah. What I hate is when someone goes, "Oh, look at that thing," and then it's like, right, okay, like Dora the Explorer. It's like, there it is. There it is. Look at look at what we're saying. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. What I love though is whilst the Young Bucks and Omega are hugging in the ring, FTR are hugging on the ramp. It's like they win together, they team together, they fight together, they lose together. Because, like I said, when they were when they did the, the double tap against DIY, it was like they agreed we'll fight another day. Yeah, they sort of looked at each other like we're gonna have to like call it here and come back to it. Yeah, yeah, they won this one. We'll win the war. Do you think Tully Blanchard should have come out at that point to console them, or it doesn't need it necessarily? I think you got too many, too many things that are like that are more important to look at. What they're doing, obviously. Because uh, Dynamite afterwards didn't feature FTR at all. I reckon we're going to get like that sort of hairdryer team talk thing. We're going to see that next week, maybe. Yeah, I think that they'll beat the shit out of some tag team in the next match. Someone's getting wrecked in the next two to three weeks. <laughs> maybe Private Party or someone like that, yeah. you know? So, after all that, and this is going to be a long episode. This, like I said, this is was a match four years in the making. Yeah. And despite all of that, I'm still not going to give it five stars. But it's a super high rating because there were just too many things that bothered me. It didn't have the crowd. If it had the crowd, I think all the other problems I had would have been nullified because I would have had that great feeling of the crowd okay. being there. Okay. Whereas this was a match designed for pops and there weren't really crowd a crowd there to pop. For. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, Austin Gunn was doing enough... On in the crowd for like a hundred people. So he is working so damn hard. <laughs> and when he was in the ring recently, I, I I'm quietly confident he could be something. But the sharpshooter bit, the moonsault to nothing, and particularly the chair, the bit. chair bit just did not work. And they were going for a perfect match, and they didn't have a perfect match. And it's like you know sometimes the crowd will allow like the crowd allows the imperfections of the Rock Hogan match to be covered. Yeah. But they weren't covered. So they had to do a technically perfect match like the like what Volta and, and Dragonov were doing, essentially. Oh and God. I didn't give that five stars. I still fucking love this match. I might think I I'd need to rewatch it, but I think it's maybe a more perfect because of the FTR's brand of more like, you know, a wrestling that makes me feel like I'm being complimented for watching it. I'm with you. But, you know, it's, it's no surprise to me that FTR kind of worship the grand Bret Hart walk, walks on, and that's why I love them too. <laughs> but I don't think this is as good, like, from my memory, I don't remember it, I don't think it's as good as the best of the DIY matches. Mm. But that was because that had the crowd there yeah. as well going apeshit. Yeah. I liked it, I liked it a lot, a lot, a lot. Look, like, fucking whatever... If we're doing it, I would have given, yeah, sure, four and three quarter stars. I don't like to say it, but yeah, fine. Whatever yeah. it is, whatever scale we're doing that's the one step off of perfect, I would give that to this. So it could still be the best match I saw this year. I'd need to rewatch a few. 
Mm. You know, but um, but no, for me, more because of the standards they set themselves. Yeah. See, I'm going to go with like the gut feeling I had. I think when you watch a match live, you sort of get swept up in it more than when we watch a match like Dragon of Walter. Obviously, I watched that after knowing about the rating, whereas I saw this live. For me, it is five stars. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, I, I, I think it's just really enjoyable. Um, is it five and a quarter stars, Simon? <laughs> Oh, Christ, I'm not splitting hairs that much. Do we want to talk at all about Jim Cornette's comments about it, or have you not seen them? I've not seen them. I, I have got seen angry Jim at Tully Cornette Blanchard going away. One. You got angry at Tully Blanchard being banned from ringside, and he said, well, then he should have turned up later. It's not always about the managers, Jim. Mm. Uh, he was going... It was, it was, to be fair, he was criticising things that I didn't bother me. He thought that Matt Jackson was being, like, Superman in how he presented himself, like Hulk Hogan. But if you look at it in... Like, first of all, you got. I think you got to look into it. Like, he's wrestling for his career essentially at this point. Yeah, it's not just that. It's it's three things. It's the tag titles they haven't won before. It's the team they've wanted to wrestle for four years, and it's the mat. You know, and it's their last chance for them to ever challenge for these belts. And I'm back and forth onto that. It's to reverse their underwhelming performance in the first year. Yeah, they, they yeah, said exactly themselves well. they've been underwhelming as a unit. Yeah, so it's not a self-indulgence to me. And like I said, I think if the if FTR had turned up and they'd had, I think they wanted to have they they would have thought logically. First match we'll have is them against the Young Bucks for the next pay per view in front of a rabid crowd. If that had been what would have happened, non-title Young Bucks would have won. Oh, uh, sorry, FTR would have won. Sorry, FTR would have won. They would have done like what Cody did for MJF, what Omega did for Moxley. You know, they would have done that favor. Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't get the chance to. So, and like I said, I think it's some. I think the next two matches, I would think at least the next match, FTR are going to win. Like, I think they might win it very quickly as mm. well. And so they, they will give their losses back at some point. This is the start of a of a series. Yeah, you know, they will have many matches to go in different gimmicks and different stipulations. It'll be curious then when it's like it's not the novelty anymore. Yeah. Will it mean as much? But I think it should do. I mean, when you get the crowd, like the, the full crowd back to use as a story boosting or a storytelling device as well, and you can like play off a louder reaction. There's, there's places, you'll, this may go places we don't, can't think of straight away. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, let's, let's just look to the future. And, and be excited about that. They'll do like two out of three falls. I did not expect a Noddy Holder quote this late in the uh, episode. Well, we're not quite here. It isn't Merry Christmas, but we are having fun. Hey, we will look to the future. It's only just begun, as you say. I I, I loved it, and and Jim Cornette. His did you hear what he would how he would have booked the match? No, no, I. I... It was Russo-rific. Oh boy! Just look it up. You'll be surprised. I mean, that's just the case he's got. He has some valid criticisms that I had. The, the sharpsuit spot, the moonsault to nowhere, the chair thing didn't work for me. I think FTR can kind of bring Young Bucks down to to work on it. And it's not like Young Bucks are averse to this. This is the Young Bucks that works all the IWG. You know, they would, instead of it being the Matt's back, it was Matt's leg, you know, yeah. which has been the running thing for the past few years about the Young Bucks is that Matt's back lets them down. So, like, to say they don't know how to tell stories is a crock of shit. Mm. To say they can be self-indulgent is very valid. Uh, but to the minute, although, you know, FTR doing, like, you know, how why does no one ever go at FTR for literally doing finisher spam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they keep doing it, but I think this match was very much positioned as an a tribute to tag team wrestling as a medium. So, it's fine once, but only once. Okay, then. Let's just quickly go through it. The, we've got Patreon, patreon.com slash lmtyspod. If you want to get in touch with me, it's Lorcan Mullen, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Arn Anderson, N for no flips, just fists. That's my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, letterboxd, putting out gmail.com at the end of it. That's my email address. Get in touch with the show, lmtyspod at gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook. Simon, how can people get in touch with you? People can get in touch with me uh, at simoncrossfree on Twitter. So known because there's going to be three of these bad boy matches, at least, in like a trilogy they're going to go for. Yep. 
So what we will have next is the first of a long time of an actual Let Me Tell You Something episode where we're just going to talk about particular subjects in wrestling. No matches, just discussion. (laughs) (laughs) But it's going to be a new idea that might carry on within Let Me Tell You Something. Essentially, something we've talked about for ages. It's something that's going to happen at some point, I think, inevitably. So why don't we make the first pitch or brainstorm? We're going to do a movie pitch. And we are going to figure out how do you do the bare bones story, at least, of a movie about the Monday Night Wars? Yeah. Now, obviously, there's been some documentaries that WWE have done. There's a couple of documentaries being mooted right now. But this is very much in the... We're we're not pitching a documentary. We are pitching a dramatic experience. We might even do some dream casting. Indeed. But anyway, until then... My name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you a lot of things. Have a five and a quarter star time. Until the next time. (laughs) 